you can't sit on the sidelines and think about something forever or try to refine something forever. It will never ever be perfect until you put it out in the world and you start getting feedback and you start revising. So, you know, like people will get into a kind of analysis paralysis where they won't act because they're trying to make it perfect. And the thing that you need to do is just get something out there so that people can start reacting to it and you can learn from that. Welcome to The In Factor. Conversations about how great entrepreneurs started, stumbled, and succeeded. I'm Rebecca White, and joining me today is Jason Pfeiffer, the Editor-in-Chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, host of three podcasts, Pessimist Archive, Hush Money, and Problem Solvers, and co-author of the novel Mr. Nice Guy. In today's episode, Jason shares with us some strategies for persevering through adversity, and embracing the inevitable changes of life. I do hope you enjoy this episode as much as I do. Jason, thank you for being with us on InFactor today. I'm really excited to have you here. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Sure. So you've been editor for Men's Health, Fast Company, Maxim, and Boston Magazine, and you're now the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. Correct. You've also authored a novel, Mr. Nice Guy, with your wife, which is currently being developed for television, I believe. Yeah, yeah. And got some podcasts, a lot of things going on. Tell us a bit about your background and how you got to today. Well, I started as a community newspaper reporter in central, north central Massachusetts, a place called the Gardner News. And I hated it. Couldn't have hated it anymore. And, I, you know, it's <laughs> funny. I was actually just today looking back at this letter that my boss at the time had written me. I hated that job. And yet I didn't leave it. I was there for a year plus. It was my first job. And then one day I show up. I'm going to just read it to you because I literally, I've been thinking a lot about this for reasons that I'll explain in a second. I was looking at this letter that he wrote and he wrote, I'm just going to quote him, quote, Stu Norwood, wherever you are in the world, Stu Norwood. I'm giving you two weeks to prove to me that you will be an asset to the newspaper and not the detriment and drag on the newsroom that you have become. Your attitude, behavior, and productivity must change quickly to meet the newspaper's needs. Wow. Um, yeah, it was, it was, but you know what? It was great. And the reason that it was great was because it forced me to quit that job, which is what I did. I realized I have a lot of passion, but it is not for this job and it will never be for this job. And in fact, it won't even be for the path that this job puts me on. So it's time to quit and find something else. And the reason why I was thinking about it today was because we're all locked away in coronavirus land and right. a lot of our plans have drastically changed or been curtailed or something. You know, people have lost jobs and they've lost paths and they've lost their plans. The thing that I want to remember and remind people of is that sometimes the the interruption, not even sometimes, oftentimes the interruption can be a real gift it can set you down on a greater path. It can force you to rethink the things that you are and the things that you do. And so many entrepreneurs that I talk to have built their companies after they got laid off or after they quit a job they hated or whatever. So anyway, that was really, that was really my path. I mean, I sat in my bedroom after quitting that job and cold-pitched publications for nine months and landed a few pieces in the Washington Post and Boston Globe or so on. And... and it taught me the importance of taking risk and the importance of going to people instead of waiting for them to come to me. And 
I have used those insights and skills ever since. I, you, you listed off a lot of places that I worked. I ended up getting into magazines, moving to New York, switching around who I am and what I do a number of times and ultimately landed in this role that I could not have possibly anticipated being in, which is leading a business magazine and speaking about change and the importance of embracing it. Wonderful. Well, you know, you're kind of, you're in, you would be one of those people that have a slash career, I guess, because you have, you're in a great position there with Entrepreneur Magazine, but you're also doing all these podcasts and Mm -hmm. um, you're doing a lot of other things. And as we started to talk today, you were talking about being in Colorado with your parents as we're all isolating and trying to do our part for COVID-19. And you mentioned that your productivity had gone down. Tell us a little bit about how you, I mean, you're very young. You've accomplished a lot in a short amount of time. How do you manage your time so well? And do you have any productivity hacks for our listeners? Maybe, maybe not right now while you're, you're dealing with having (laughs) kids in your parents' home, but no. Yeah, I'm really, really struggling with productivity now because I'm used to working at a very fast-paced, high level and being able to focus my attention on large projects for a good period of time. And now it's constant interruption. I, I can't get a whole lot done and it's really challenging. And so, I mean, during normal times, I have a number of things. I mean, number one, I think a lot about teams and how to continually evolve process. There's this line that I was recently interviewing Dwayne The Rock Johnson and his Mm -hmm. business partner, Danny Garcia. And they said this thing to me, which I really love, which was that we are not attached to process. We're only attached to outcome. And so that means constantly revising how things are done, the, the people who are helping you. Can you find better ways? And so on every project that I have, and I have a lot of them, I have some form of team. Sometimes it's a really small team. Sometimes it's a cobbled together team. Sometimes it's volunteers if it's a podcast. But I'm trying to evolve almost on a issue by issue, episode by episode basis, how I'm producing these things to try to find the best way possible. Also. I think about time in terms of outcome. So this was a big shift that I I went through, especially when I had kids, which corresponded with me being the busiest that I've ever been professionally. And realizing that every hour had an outcome attached to it that you would see later. So I could think about an hour and say, well, okay, I could work on this podcast or I could watch a basketball game at home or I could flip around on Twitter or something, what would I rather say I have as a result of this hour a week or two weeks or a month from now? Would I rather say I watched that game? Would I rather say I read those tweets? Or would I rather say listen to this podcast I made? The answer is always listen to the podcast I made or look, read this article that I wrote or something. Mm-hmm. So I'm by thinking about outcome, I'm able to manage my time better because it it puts it into perspective. I really have a much easier time focusing on my tasks when I'm very aware of what's going to come out of the time spent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Having a goal in mind really helps. You know, I want to go back to your comments about team and pulling a team together. Mm -hmm. You know, in our entrepreneurship classes, we talk about 
strategic social networking. And I just wrote a blog, which I'm going to post in a day or so, basically entitled Strategic Social Networking in a Social Distancing World. Mm. How do you think, you know, you mentioned the COVID-19 pandemic that we're in, and I'm going to get back to that in a little bit, but how do you think things are going to change? You know, right now we're in a world where we're six feet apart, handshakes stopped, I don't know for you, but for several weeks prior to yep. the isolation for in our world. And it's kind of a, it's, a, it's hard not to feel isolated, but yet like you, I depend on a lot of people to be a part of everything that I've ever accomplished. You know, it's never been solitary. It's been, it's been a team effort. Do you have any thoughts on what that's going to look like or or how we ready ourselves for that? Oh, I mean, I think that there's going to be fundamental systemic structural change that comes out of this, all for the better. I'm actually really excited for the things that are going to come out of this. And, and I could, I admit, I could probably spend the next five hours listing them off to you. But, you know, a few of them, the rate of adoption for digital communication technologies, if we're going to talk about team building, the rate of adoption just spiked in a crazy, unprecedented way. I mean, you think about, take, take a step back and think about, uh, so I have a five-year-old or an almost five-year-old who's in preschool. And we loved that preschool. And then that preschool tried to create a digital learning experience for him once we were all isolated. And it is not good. And I don't blame the teachers for that because they are utilizing what tools they have, which are minimal, and they are not trained for this at all. And they are doing the best that they can. You know who I blame for it? I'll tell you. I blame people who were worried about screen time. The people who spent the last two decades worrying about screen time, could we, are we, do we have too much screen time? Should my children have screen time? Those people stopped us from developing excellent technologies for exactly this kind of moment, a moment in which lots of people might want a different kind of way to connect. So now, because of worries about screen time, I don't have a good educational tool for my child. I am furious at those people. So what's going to happen now? Well, now we actually all are connected. We are all on, quote unquote, screen time. And what that's going to do is finally create the incentives and the mass adoption for new kinds of use cases. So now we're going to be able to see all these new ideas and new ways that we can be serviced together because now everyone's got to do it. And so we're able to experience it, discover that it's not as bad as everyone thought. In fact, it's actually quite good. And now there are enough people and enough different use cases that you're already seeing, for example, all sorts of new interesting video conferencing technologies come out. Just a week or so ago, this uh, company called Around debuted where instead of doing what we're doing, you and I are currently talking on Zoom, which takes up my entire screen, which is fine, an old way of thinking about it, but Around just has has little floating heads on your screen so that you can see other things while you're working. That is so smart. That didn't exist because we didn't need it. But now that we have more adoption, we are going to see more innovation. And you now take that and just apply it across everything that we experience right now, and you're going to see massive, massive improvements. Yeah. You know, we're doing this, of course, in education. We're all online at the university level. I just had a conversation with somebody who does telemedicine. And, you know, the yeah. benefits they are keeping people out of the emergency room, for example, by giving them a chance to connect with the doctor at home so that the hospitals can be for the 
for the critically ill and sure. not, not for the, I think, 75 or 80% of people that show up in an emergency room that don't really need to be there. So Right. And the person that you talked to perhaps mentioned the change in policy that is enabling that. Did you guys discuss that? We didn't get to the policy. Oh, I mean, that is so critical. And you're seeing that, you'll be seeing that, you're seeing it in telemedicine in particular, but you'll be seeing it throughout, which is that this crisis is forcing a retraction of policies that frankly didn't make any sense to begin with and were harming innovation and now are going to go away and hopefully never come back. So for example, I mean, you and I were talking on Zoom. If you were my doctor, I couldn't have talked to you on Zoom in a pre-coronavirus world. It wasn't legally allowed. Now it is. I cannot for the life of me understand why I could not talk to my doctor on Zoom, but I'm glad that now I can. And I hope that that law does not ever come back because it was stupid. And we're going to see just so much of that. There's a dropping of these regulations that didn't make sense and we're, we're standing in the way of innovation. And it's going to allow a flourishing of these new kinds of technologies. Yeah, yeah. So it is, it, there's a lot of exciting things, I think, you're right, that can come out of this. And we're seeing, we're seeing exponential change right now. Yes, we certainly are. It's, and the ripple effects have not even begun. So you think about, for example, I was talking to Alex Stapp, who's the tech policy director, I think, at the Progressive Policy Institute recently. He made this interesting point about how now that we are all using these digital tools, there is a strain on digital infrastructure. I mean, rather, there's just mm-hmm. like the capacity is not nearly perhaps what it, what it should be. And that is li- very likely going to shift investors and innovators and entrepreneurs' focus onto digital infrastructure. So this might push us to, for example, finally be able to increase access. I mean, there's still so many parts of the rural United States that don't have the kind of internet access that urban parts have. That's crazy. So let's fix that. Also, you know, I mean, our internet is just slow and awful. And you find we're rolling out 5G, but it's kind of happening slowly and, and piecemeal. So you could see that this shift right now leads to a massive investment and innovation in digital infrastructure. And then that in turn will enable all sorts of new innovations that we can't even imagine yet. The ripple effects of this, they're going to go on for decades. Yeah. Yeah. It's exciting. You know, it makes me think, I'm really fascinated by one of your podcasts, The Pessimist's Archive. And you say basically that you travel back in time to look at innovation and why people resisted them. Obviously, we're thrown into this. Mm -hmm. And as you pointed out, we were resisting a lot of it. And you asked the question, why do people keep resisting new things? So I'm excited to spend some time on that podcast. I haven't done that yet. So I'm, I'm really excited to, to do that. But I'm really Thanks. curious, do you have some summary lessons that you've started to pull together from doing those explorations into some past innovations and why people resisted them? Oh, sure. Sure. Tons and tons and tons. So, right. So, Pessimists Archive, the general premise is that each episode, I look back at the moment something new was introduced that today we think of as totally commonplace, like the car, the bicycle, the elevator, teddy bears, the novel, chess, coffee, all these things. Every part of your world that you don't spend any time thinking about was something that was new and scary. I mean, not just technologies and innovations, but even processes. The idea of walking into a store and picking a product up off the shelf and bringing it to a cashier, that was a pretty new thing in the the 1900s, and people were furious about it. And so 
you look back at these moments and you try to understand why people resisted these things and then you see how they got over them. And you do, you see lots of really valuable patterns. One of my favorites, this is something that, that you see quite a lot. Okay, so let's talk about the elevator for a minute. When the elevator, first of all, people were afraid of the elevator at the very beginning with very good reason because they were plummeting and killing people. (laughs) But once Otis of Otis Elevators, which is the manufacturer of basically every elevator you've ever walked into, once Otis, his claim to fame was that he created the safety elevator. It was a mechanism by which if the elevator started falling, it it would snap in place and not kill people. That's what launched that company. So anyway, once that happened, elevator innovation was able to take place and, and it led to all sorts of massive, fascinating changes in our in our society. I mean, you know, you think about cities. Cities exist the way that we understand them because of the elevator. Prior to that, the you know buildings were generally not more than six or seven stories and the poor lived on the top and the rich lived on the bottom because the rich didn't want to have to climb a whole bunch of stairs. And then once the elevator came in, we were able to build tall buildings and it's, and it's swapped. We switched and that. They, yeah, the rich <laughs> wanted to live on the top. So, you know, you, you see how transformative this stuff is. But now think about this. Think about what happened when technology evolved so that the elevator could move on its own. Because before you had a you had an elevator operator who at the very beginning was literally pulling a rope to make the elevator go up and down, and then they were spinning a kind of crank, and then eventually they were pushing a button. But there was a time where they weren't needed. There was the automatic elevator; it could move up and down on its own. But that was such a scary and foreign concept to people: the idea of stepping into a box where you cannot see out of it, and it is going to move on its own. People were terrified. People were literally writing newspaper columns with things like, what does the elevator think? Right? Because it just seemed like it had a mind of its own. So what do you do? What do you do if you are the creator of an automatic elevator, if you're Otis Elevators, and you want to get people to trust this? You want to take a guess? You get some celebrities or thought leaders on it and give it a try? <laughs> you, let them... <laughs> no, you put a female voice in the elevator that says, a soothing going calming. up, going down, <laughs> floor one, floor two. It's not just that it's soothing and calming. It's that it's replacing the human element that was already there, right? The thing is that you need to create a bridge for people, a bridge of familiarity, so that the thing that you're presenting that's new doesn't feel radically new, but just feels like an updated version of something that they already trust. And you see that throughout technology introductions. You saw it in the car, for example, where the earliest cars were presented as a replacement for the horse. And people didn't like that. In fact, when the car, when people would drive early horseless carriages, as they were called down the street, people would stand on the sidewalks and they would yell, get a horse at these people. Um, (laughs) And people did. And you know what? The brilliant innovation in car manufacturing was not, it was not Henry Ford. I mean, Henry Ford you know, did what he did, we all know. But actually, the massive innovation, the thing that allowed Henry Ford to be the success that he was, happened just before Henry Ford, which was that car manufacturers figured out how to talk to people about cars. And they stopped talking about cars as a replacement for your horse, because people liked their horses. And they started talking about them as better horses. 
And so that's where things like horsepower comes from, right? <laughs> why do you think that we have these words like horsepower? Why is the Mustang and all these other cars named after horses? The answer is because people were trying to build a bridge of familiarity so that the car didn't seem like a foreign crazy thing that was shoved upon people, but instead just an improvement of something that they already had. Love and that. It's a, just, it's just a, a key to innovation that people often forget about that, you know, you come up with some new innovation, you're thrilled by it, you understand it, you understand how it can fit into people's worlds, and then you throw it out into the world and people have no idea what to do with it. You have to build a bridge of familiarity. So that's, you know, that, let, take it back a little bit to what we were talking about earlier. And you were talking about the policies that were in place that stopped some of our technology advancements. Yeah. And those were there because of the pessimists who were worried, I think, about the lack of human interaction and the isolation that can come from technology. What do you say to that? I mean, how will we, you know, a lot of people are feeling, I mean, we were thrust into this now and, yeah. you know, many people coming, kicking and screaming. And I know many faculty, you know, are struggling with how to deal with this. And, and what would you mm -hmm. say about that issue of isolation? Will we become a more isolated society because technology can keep us away from each other? Will we lose that human no, contact? No, no, not at all. I mean... Not at all. I mean, first, first, just you know, a little, I mean, a little extra context on the policy stuff. Oftentimes, these policies are driven not just by earnest fears, but they're driven by protectionism. Right. Uh, you know, their regulatory capture. So I did a whole episode about how the butter industry managed to pass all sorts of insane laws against margarine because they saw margarine as a threat. In in this country, in this country, margarine. There were laws on the books in New Hampshire mandated that margarine be dyed pink so that it was unappealing to eat. I mean, that's so crazy. That actually was struck down by the Supreme Court. So oftentimes that's where a lot of that stuff comes from. And even if it doesn't get manifest into law, it becomes cultural fears that are also driven by incumbent industries. So for example, the radio, if you go back to the dawn of radio, you'll find all of these newspaper stories about how terrifying the radio is. Radio face was a thing that people were afraid of, that you would listen to the radio and it would strain your face and like your face would become hardened and frozen. <laughs> I mean, you know, you know who was promoting that stuff? It was the newspaper industry. News, yeah. It was the newspaper industry that saw the radio as a threat. That's what that was. So, but to your question about isolation. So, I mean, there are a couple of things. First of all, there's a wonderful book that's totally worth checking out called Bored, Lonely, Angry, Stupid about the history of emotions and how the things that we often focus on, for example, we'll say, oh, selfies have made us so vain. But if you look back in time, in fact, actually the very concept of vanity was had evolved over hundreds of years and our sense of what vanity was back then is not what it is today. And, you know, it's ridiculous to talk about selfies being the thing that creates vanity because this is what was said of mirrors and handwriting, sending letters to people and on and on. But what I think is most important and something that people should keep in mind during this moment and, and then once we come out of it is that we use digital technology. We are not the victims of digital technology. And so oftentimes when you see a shift in the way that people use something, it's because that tool just came to serve a different purpose. We, we used to fear that technology would would separate us. I mean, right in a pre-coronavirus world, everybody would talk about, oh, Facebook makes us lonely and no, kids
it's divorced from reality. And now you see it. You see it because what we are trying to do right now is utilize these technologies to bring us as close as we possibly can. You know, digital, tech, digital communication technologies used to be a thing where we put part of our lives, you know, we would all shape our lives into this format that felt like it matched Instagram's algorithm, which I think was fine. I just don't understand why that's a problem, but that's what people would critique. Oh, now kids are obsessed with the likes and they're only posting parts of themselves that, you know, that, that people are going to like or whatever. But now it's shifted. Now it's shifted. Now we're trying to fit our entire selves into digital technology because it's the only thing that we have to keep us together. So when we're able to go outside, of course we'll go outside. The things that we use our digital technologies for may change and they will adapt to the new circumstances, but it's not as if we're suddenly going to say, oh, well, I was home for three months. I don't need to see anybody ever again. No, 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 no. We are pack animals. We like communication. We like community. We've never stopped liking it and we will continue to like it. It could look different and the tools that we use to actually foster that community will be different by generation, but the idea of community will never go away. It's just a question of how it manifests. Yeah, thank goodness, actually. <laughs> I love yeah. it. So, you know, one of the things I like to talk about on these programs is opportunity recognition. I get a lot mm. of students who are you know, they want to be entrepreneurs, they're looking, looking for opportunities. And, you know, you often hear that, you know, look for a big problem and you find opportunities. Do you have any thoughts on opportunity recognition? Is it about timing? Is it about staying aware of what's going on around you? Is it about learning to connect the dots? Is it all of the above? Yeah, I mean, sure, it's about, it's about all of that. I mean, I think that opportunity recognition is about seeing a problem and understanding a solution and then giving yourself in to the give and take of refining that solution because nobody who there are no businesses out there today that are you know are successful now or let's just you know for reference point successful in a pre-coronavirus world that were born in full form Right. I mean, you know, Airbnb, Brian Chesky always tells this great story, co-founder of Airbnb, tells this great story about how, you know, he, he and his team would go in the early days, they weren't getting many bookings. And so they just started going to all their hosts with cameras and just presenting themselves as like the photographers for the company and taking photos of people's homes because they realized that, you know, their original thesis that people would just want to kind of couch surf and pop into somebody's home doesn't really work. It still needs to look professional and feel comforting. And so that business model evolved, you know, a million times before it got to the place that it was. So you need to not just recognize a problem, come up with a solution, but you need to engage in a nonstop conversation with the people whose problem you are trying to solve so that you can refine, so that you can understand what they're thinking, and so that you can keep refining your vision. I mean, the thing is that nobody just comes out with something brilliant. What they do is they come out with a start of something, and then they're committed to making it brilliant. Mm -hmm. We talk a lot to our students about gathering raw material, both specific to your problem and not specific to your problem, because that's where you can find some connectivity. You got to gather all that, all that data and all that information, and and start putting it together to connect the dots. You know, that's one right. of the, one of the interesting things about a change that we're facing right now is is that there's probably a lot of businesses out there that are going to be able to see opportunities maybe that they didn't even they couldn't see before because totally. of the change. 
that's happening. One of the exciting ways that I like to talk about opportunity recognition is to go back to the source of the word. It comes from the Latin phrase ob portu, which refers to the time when the captain and the crew were waiting at port before ports were dredged back in the old days. And Hmm. so they had to be ready and watching. And when that tide went up, they could go. But if they tried to go too soon or if they waited too long, they missed their opportunities. So I think there's probably a lot of good opportunities out there right now that companies can find. That maybe That's they- great. I love that. And it's yeah. a great metaphor too, because you got you to gotta jump, right? I mean, the great thing about, I mean, if you, you know, if you follow the logic of having the conversation because the thing that you launched isn't perfect, it means that you have to be okay launching something with it being imperfect. Reed Hoffman, co-founder of LinkedIn, likes to say, if you aren't embarrassed by your first product, then you launched too late. Uh, and right, and the idea is that you can't you can't sit on the sidelines and think about something forever or try to refine something forever. It will never ever be perfect until you put it out in the world and you start getting feedback and you start revising. So you know, like people will get into a kind of analysis paralysis where they won't act because they're trying to make it perfect. And the thing that you need to do is just get something out there so that people can start reacting to it and you can learn from that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, another topic that I like to dive into is the topic of failure and and mm-hmm. challenges and resilience. And I know you wrote a book or an article, actually, Embrace Your Setbacks and Use Them to Your Advantage. Yeah. You say we're either the sum of our setbacks or the sum of our triumphs, choose the latter. Would you talk a little bit about, about the role of setbacks, challenges, failures, maybe in your life or in entrepreneurs that you've seen and maybe talk a little about resilience? And Yeah, sure. I, so that column came out of a question that somebody asked me on stage once where they had said that they have experienced a lot of failure in their lives. They wanted to know how to proceed. How do you go forward? How do you talk to somebody? How do you try to convince someone to work with you when you have failed before, maybe failed multiple times? The thing that made me think of was that when you're talking to someone, someone new, they only know what you present to them. You don't wear your failures on your sleeve. They're not visible. They're not physically on you they are a part of you. That means that it is your option. It is your power to frame it in a way that tells your full story. You know, the important thing to know is that you should not, you shouldn't present yourself as a failure. You should present your hero's journey. You know, the hero's journey is like the classic storytelling mechanism, which is, you know, hero sets out on a quest, hero experiences setback, hero overcomes. That's every story. That's every movie you've ever watched. That's every piece of classical storytelling, right? I mean, that's everything. And that's that's what people like and it's what people want. And I think that people often, they often make two, one of two mistakes in telling their own story. Either one, they avoid talking about the setback because they think that it's going to be off-putting. But in fact, in reality, it's off-putting to not hear about the setback. People don't like to hear just pure success stories. They don't like to hear someone just talk about how awesome they are. They like to hear about how they overcame. It makes them more relatable. And it also convinces people that, oh, if other problems arise and other problems will arise, that this person is able to handle it because they've been through it before. Investors love hearing about failure. They love it because they want to hear how you came 
how you overcame it. So that's, you know, that's problem number one is that they don't talk about the failure. Problem number two is that they talk too much about the failure or they, they present themselves as a failure. You know, I've had a lot of really hard time and this part this went wrong, this went wrong, and now I'm going to try to do better. No, 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 no. Tell me how you did do better, right? Tell me how you're doing better. Get me on board with this person who's a rocket ship coming out of the, you know, the deep, dark hole of the, of the sea. That's what we want to see. So yeah, every single person that I talk to, every person that I interview has had lots of failure. And I think that the most successful ones are often the most comfortable talking about how it went wrong. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I, I sat down, you know, I mentioned earlier, I talked to Dwayne Johnson and Danny Garcia and, and, oh man, they're so open about it. It's, it's so great. I mean, you know, like they really, you know, you think of that guy's career and how much success he's had, but he, he'll tell you that in 2008, he had absolutely no idea what he was doing. I mean, he just felt like he was totally floundering and this is everybody and you should embrace that because it is, the, it is truly the story of every successful person that you have encountered. And if those people are truly in touch with themselves, then they will be very open to sharing that and they should because this is a part of the journey. And that's probably where their greatest lessons were as well. So, you know, yeah, I found, I learned this early on when I had a student come and talk to me, you know, about how hard her life was a failure and, and she was having, struggling to find a job. And then I told her about my own struggles and she was like, oh, you make me feel so much better. Yeah. You know, because what we tend to see is the success of everybody and, and, so failure, you know, when you think about resilience, have you picked up any really good lessons and tips for how to prepare yourself for this failure? Because it's never, never fun, obviously having a mindset around mm-hmm. the fact that it's going to be part of it and that you can survive. Is there, is there anything else you would recommend to the entrepreneur that might be struggling out there right now, feeling like they're at the depths of despair? Yeah, build a great support system. You know, I mean, if you don't have a great support system, then build a great support system. You can, if you find other people who are in similar situations to you and you start the conversation, they will come to you. I mean, you know, you just said that there was a student who felt comforted by hearing about your own setbacks. And I, I've experienced that so many times where I remember once I was speaking at a college and I can't remember what I talked about, but I, I, you know, I talked about some failings of mine or some something. And afterwards, the the student came over to me and said, "I really, really appreciate how vulnerable you were willing to be. That's really brave, and I appreciate it." And I said, "You know what? It's not brave because I know that if I do that, you're going to like it. <laughs> <laughs> I know that." I know that because I know that that's what people want and people need. So it's not, it's not brave of me at all. I, I'm just doing the thing that I know you need and know you like. And so if you think of it that way, if you think that, you know what, if you're open about these things, that other people will like you for it and will want to talk to you about it and that you could band together and if not solve problems together, then at least have the emotional support of seeing that this is not a thing that you're going through alone. That by itself is so powerful because you know, basically anything is overcomable. I mean, I, you know, I've talked to entrepreneurs who, who were in, you know, just the most dire of circumstances and, and got through it. And the way they did it was by understanding that every problem is just a problem. Every problem is just a problem. And those problems have solutions. And so it doesn't matter if it's a small problem or if it's an existential crisis. It's just a thing in front of you that you have to solve. Yeah. You know, I can remember you're talking about public speaking and I can remember 
in some of my early days of public speaking when I had an epiphany and I was able to transition from worrying about what I was going to say or what people thought of what I was going to say to focusing on what do they need to hear. And when I did Mm. that, it totally took the focus off of me and it allowed me to be a better public speaker. And I think that that speaks to what you're talking about there as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the big epiphany for me was understanding that people don't want to hear a thing that I wrote. They want to hear me talk to them. So I, I didn't, I stopped trying to memorize something and I just got up there and talked. I have none of my talks are written out. I have nothing that's scripted. And that's not to say that talks that I give aren't kind of repeatable because they, they are, but I don't write it out because I don't want to memorize something because I don't want to sound like I'm reading. Instead, like reading from my head. Instead, I, I want to give them things that are so internalized to me that they come off as if I'm talking to them at the table instead of on stage. Right, right. That's powerful. So this has been this has been great, Jason. I, I love the conversation. I could talk a lot longer with you, but I know oh, you've you. got you're trying to be productive. I, I do want to <laughs> ask you an, an, another question or two before we close and kind of bring it back to the COVID-19 crisis that we're all dealing with. What do you think people can do to make the best of this? You've talked about a lot of positives that can come out of this. And it's, I think it's been an uplifting conversation, but I do know a lot of people are struggling right now. People are unemployed and, and yeah. they're sick people. And we're, well, many of us would like to be outside a little bit more. Can you, you know, provide some, something to our listeners about, about getting through the, the rest of this time that we've got to deal with this? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that the answer is that this is, understand that this is not wasted time and that you are not on pause. This is in fact, extremely important time. I have talked to so many entrepreneurs whose businesses either had to pivot drastically or that they just, they lost the natural course of their business. I remember there was a woman named Megan Asha who runs a company called FounderMade that does trade show events. And I was talking to her just before we understood the severity of this. We were, we were, I was at dinner with a number of people, her included. She, at the time, didn't know if she was going to need to cancel her events. Obviously, she did. But she said, you know, if I have to cancel these events, I'm going to choose to look at this as an opportunity. Because the way Megan said, she said, I have all these other ideas for things that I think would be great for this company. And I haven't been able to focus on them because the events take up so much time. And so now I have an opportunity to focus on other things and to develop these other ideas and other sources of revenue that are going to make this company stronger when we get out of this. I think that That is the thing that everybody needs to be doing in one way or another. If you've lost your job, it's a great time to learn some new skills. Check out, there's a million, you know, from Skillshare to LinkedIn Learning, there's a million options to start learning new skills right now so that you can come out of this. I mean, you know, and this is not a thing that's just just for COVID-19. I mean, my colleague Terry Rice just wrote this great piece on entrepreneur.com about how during the recession in 2008, he got laid off from his company. Things were bleak. I mean, he was behind on bills. His electricity got shut off. But what he chose to do was use that time to take some classes, become a digital marketing expert. His career 
thrived because of it. Now he's a digital marketing expert. He teaches classes. He's got a consultancy. He works with us. These are the kinds of things that you can be doing. So just think about this not as wasted time, but as planning time, as really possibly the most important time that you have right now to set yourself up for the future. I love it. I love it. So you interview a lot of entrepreneurs and Entrepreneur Magazine includes many many stories about entrepreneurs. Through all of your work, would you say that there's a blueprint for success for entrepreneurship? And if so, what does it look like? I mean, there's no one path that anybody takes. To me, the most important thing that an entrepreneur can do is be, is, I mean, this is, this is the theme of everything that we just talked about for the last 45 minutes is be willing to embrace change. Be, be open to it, be interested in it, understand that change is opportunity, that failure is just data, that the things that work today are not necessarily going to work tomorrow and that you have to, as The Rock says, be attached to outcome and not attached to process. Mm -hmm. Don't hang on to something just because it used to work. That's how you get left behind. And that's the thing that I see every entrepreneur who is successful do. In some way or another, they have, they have internalized the idea of constant change and they are willing to adapt forever. Sounds like a great way to live, actually, too. It is. It's hard, but it's, it's, it's not only is it a great way to live, it's really the only way. The only way, change right. Is, change is coming whether you like it or not. Exactly, exactly. Well, Jason, this has been amazing. Thank you for taking the time. Where can our listeners find you and connect with you? Yeah, so you could check out, you can find me on social media. I'm particularly engaged on LinkedIn and Instagram. LinkedIn is just my name. Instagram is at HeyPfeiffer, H-E-Y-F-E-I-F-E-R. Or please check out Pessimists Archive, which is the podcast that we talked about. And, you know, there's contact information at the end of each episode and reach out. Thank you, Jason. Thank you. Thank you. 